You have a person who has spent their whole life in jail only to find out from DNA testing later that they were innocent. Have you read of those stories? How sick to your, to your stomach do you feel when you read about that? Yeah. How messed up is that? And it's supposed to be this great celebration for this person who's been set free. And you look at the picture, and it's usually a 60 to 70-year-old man who's crying, who finally gets to live, who was put in when he was about 19. Yeah, I don't know the Mandela story as well as I should. I don't know if he put in, was put in at 19. But the point being that most of these people are innocent that are put in. And the DNA testing shows later that they were completely innocent. And yet... They didn't have it as bad as Jesus had it on the cross. Perhaps in the jail, they had friends. Perhaps in the jail, they had food. Perhaps they had exercise and got to go outside. Perhaps they had some people who contacted them. And they did have toilets if they're in this country. Um, All that to say that, honestly, when I read about that, my stomach does get sick and I feel, ugh. And yet, for some reason, I'm so desensitized to the story of the crucifixion, that sometimes that emotional upheaval doesn't occur, which kind of bums me out. Um, I'm going to be talking about that more as we go. Um, I'm going to read the passage. It should be behind me, NIV, Mark 15, 21 through 32. The crucifixion of Jesus. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross they being the Roman executioners. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see which, what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left, Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Let's pray. God, I pray, Lord, tonight that you would bless us all, Father, with the wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit. I pray, Jesus, that we would glean exactly what it is individually that you would have us glean and corporately as well, Father. Thank you for being here tonight at Scum of the Earth Church. Amen. So how many people grew up going to a church that had a play every Easter? Did you do that? Yes, me too. And our town, I uh, grew up in Greeley, well, near Greeley, and they would rent out a huge space like the local theater and have a huge production. So people, you know, Joe Schmo, janitor guy, Joe Schmo, sound guy, Joe Schmo, secretary, and some of the pastors, everybody would get to act in it. And one year, I thought it'd be cool, I was in high school, to be a demon. And they said, yeah, you could be a demon. And so me and my brother were demons, and we wore, we were gothic demons, So we wore our spikes, and we had our shaved heads. And nobody managed to mention to me that it might be bad to listen to Skinny Puppy for about four hours to get into the mindset of a demon before going on stage. Uh, There was good parts and bad parts. But the point being that every year I looked forward to the play. And that's because I needed, I'm a visual person, I'm a visual learner, and I needed to see Jesus. And they would start at the back, 
and they'd send him down through the aisle and he'd be bloodied. And maybe he was some, maybe he was even my uncle. Maybe he was someone that I knew, but for that moment it was Jesus and he was beaten and the soldiers were mocked out and yelling at him and, you know, cussing at him and freaking out at him. And he's, you know, dragging along the cross and I would bawl. It wasn't real. And I knew it wasn't real, but I was projecting the way that I felt upon what I saw. Knowing and understanding and remembering that Jesus did this for me and taking that in. And every year that was kind of something I looked forward to every year because I like those. I like emotionality and I like to remember and make it real in that way. But years passed and I stopped going to that church. And uh, I don't know, the, the story, the, the Easter story has lost some of its umph for me. Like I said, I do get sick to my stomach when I hear certain things. Even recently there was this story of uh, in Mexico, the the heat turned off in a zoo and all these animals froze to death. Oh, I feel so sick to my stomach. And yet when I read the story of the cross, I'm somewhat desensitized to it because I hear it all the time, you know? That's not a good thing. So last night when I was at home studying for this, I took a moment and I did mourn the cross. I went there. I went there emotionally. And I had to, and it was good. And on one end, I look at the torture. I looked at the torture, and I read a lot of different commentaries about the torture and the physicality. And in Luke, you can read more about the medical physicality of the pain and the suffering. And I mourned it. But at the same time that I mourned it, I praised God for it. And that, to me, is the dichotomy of the cross. The dichotomy of, this is gnarly, and this is brutal, and this is for me, and this is God's plan and this is good. And to reconcile the two is just so non-worldly. It's so beyond us. It's definitely a dichotomy. So we're going to talk about that a bit tonight. And I think that if we try to wrap our mind around the dichotomy of this is gnarly, but this is good in God's plan, we'll learn something tonight. Um, so let's look, look at the passage a bit. Verse 21, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. This is the glimpse we receive of Simon. He's just a passerby, a Jew, who's going through the town. We don't know much about him, but we do know that the Roman guards compelled him, probably ordered him, to carry Jesus' cross. And we know, we know from remembering the last month of what we've been studying why Jesus couldn't carry his own. He'd been sweating blood recently, arguing all night, and then coming to terms with his father about the cross and what he was going to do. Um, he'd been before Pilate and been condemned. He had been tortured. And then just last week, if you remember, Joshua Dillon was talking about how they mocked him and they dressed him up in purple with the crown of thorns to look, I mean, he was basically a little doll for them to pretend that he was the king of the Jews. And so all these torturous physical things have happened to Jesus in this amount of time to where he probably physically could not bear the weight of his own cross. So Simon is there to carry it for him. The part of the cross that Simon would have carried was the cross beam. And the parts that are the verticals would have already been buried and ready there at Golgotha. Golgotha is a Greek term, and it means the skull, the place of the skull. And incidentally, we say Calvary sometimes. Calvary is just the Latin word for that term. So Golgotha and Calvary are the same. It's Greek and Latin, the same place, though. And historians say two things about Golgotha. It really was like a big, bald head. This, this landscape it was like a big bald head, no vegetation, no trees. They speculate about whether or not there was like concave pieces that look like eye sockets. 
I don't know. Um, and they also say something to keep in mind, the place of the skull, well, this is where crucifixions happen. So crucifixions equal a lot of skulls. So that might be the name, reason for the name too. So he's taken there. Verse 23. Then they offered Jesus wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, when I was young, I used to think, oh, they're trying to slip in some wine to get him to sin, right? I don't know if you guys thought that. <laughs> I was like, oh, if the wine gets in his mouth, he's not, you know, pure anymore. That is not it. Um, I have since learned. <laughs> um, in fact, Jesus is not the only person who was offered wine and myrrh. It is, it is recorded in other um, places that women would be there at the crucifixions and would offer wine and myrrh as a narcotic, a painkiller, to people who are going to be crucified as, a, as an act of mercy, honestly. But we know that Jesus is not going to take this for a few reasons, and he doesn't, obviously, but we know he doesn't take it because he needs to be there mentally all the way. He needs to be there physically all the way to experience this pain. He needs to be there spiritually all the way. And he also had told the disciples that he would not drink again from the fruit of the vine until it was in the new kingdom. So we know he's not going to take it. He wants to drink not of the cup of wine, but of the cup of his father that he has agreed to take. So he's not going to take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him, and the written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. I'm sure some of you know or have heard or have read more of the gospel stories where um, it is said that one of the robbers comes to faith later, later and believes. Well, Mark doesn't mention that. Mark is giving us little glimpses for his own purposes. And he doesn't mention that, but you can read on about that. It doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means that Mark did not record that. But he does record that he is between two guilty sinners. These guys are innocent like Jesus. They might have been guys who ran with Barabbas, as we read about earlier. Uh, Barabbas was let go in order that Jesus could be taken. Um, so we don't know. But what we do know is that, of course, Jesus is between sinners. I mean, he is most comfortable with sinners. He's always been with sinners. And this is, you know, fitting for him in the way he would have agreed to do it. Verse 29, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. Imagine that you're going to work as a Roman executioner. You get to work and Pilate gives you your list of the guilty for that day. And you go and you're going to force them up to Golgotha. Only this day there's a particularly slow guy. He's taken forever to get up there and you want to get on with it. All kinds of people are out to mock him. Everyone's yelling at him. Like even the high priests are out. The Gentiles are yelling at him. The Romans and the Jews are yelling at him too. People are cussing at him and freaking out about him. He's naked. He's way too weak to carry his cross. So you order some guy to help him get on with it. Let's get on with it. Let's go. And while your friends, your other Roman guards, are beating a nail into his legs and into his arms, his wrists, you're excited because you might win some of his loot. You're going to gamble for some of his stuff. And it's totally just another day for you. Only you didn't win the stuff. I say it like that because... It, it occurs to me just how desensitized these Roman soldiers were to get to the point where there are dead bodies around you, rotting flesh, corpses, lack of humanity, and yet they're gambling for stuff. 
Or maybe, I mean, Jesus didn't have a lot of money. He was a traveling guy. Maybe a few things, but, you know, they still want it. They still want that stuff. Maybe it was just to pass the time. I don't know. Um, and it's interesting because these guys who are begging and wanting his stuff, they don't put any value in the person of Jesus, but they put the value in the stuff. The stuff had more, I mean, the stuff had more value than the personhood of Jesus or of any of these people being crucified. So Mark wrote this down because he was there. He saw the gambling. He would have seen it because crucifixions back then were public. Um, someone was talking to me about it, and I don't know the laws, but I know in Texas um, the executions are public, and in some places they are. Like You can go and see someone get executed if it's your right. It's public. And in this case, not only was it public, but it was also a warning. That's why it was public. The Romans were saying, do you see this hill outside of Jerusalem right here? This huge emblem, don't mess with the Romans. Don't put up too much of a fight. Someone had to think of a cross, design it and produce it and try it out first and try it out again and try it out again and try it out again to come up with this system. And there it was, and it had been done a lot. So Mark was there and he was watching this. But I don't think that Mark mentions the gambling for the clothes only because he's concerned that the reader know about the desensitized of the Roman soldiers. I think it's there because it was fulfilling a prophecy. Uh, Psalm 22 talks in great detail about the Messiah being tortured and different details that would happen to him. Fran is going to talk about that a little more next week, but I did want to read a little bit to you because it is so obvious and fascinating that you would think that everybody would get it. And maybe they do get it and do see it, but it just doesn't meet their expectation. Psalm 22, 12 through 18. David is writing this, but we can take it as being Jesus. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot's turd. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet, and all my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garden, for my garment. So this is prophecy. And there's a lot of prophecy that is exactly detailing what happened on the cross. And what do we know when we see its prophecy? We know it's God's plan. And that's what makes it even more than more gnarly and more beautiful, and more of a love story. Yes, it's horrific. Don't get me wrong. It is horrific. This is a rated R. I cannot watch The Passion of the Christ. This is a gnarly story, but it is a love story for us. Um, so he's crucified as the king of the Jews, and he was the king of the Jews. He was prophesied as the king of the Jews. They had it written in Greek, in Latin, and Hebrew above his head. We think the full inscription was, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And here he is. But this is not what we would expect as a funeral for a king. Have you ever thought if the story ended differently? If, you know, naturally Jesus choked on a fish bone at the age of 30 and died, um, what his funeral would be like? 
I'd never thought of that. And I decided to really think it through. And I was like, oh, man, he would have an amazing funeral. All the people he healed, all the people he touched, all the people he had spoken to. How do we do our funerals? We do them big, right? We care about people. Everyone wants to get up and take a turn and talk about how this person mattered in their life and how they made a difference. And they show honor and they and they mourn together and they touch the person. Or what about if Jesus was dying? Instead of dying and choking on a fishbone, he died slowly. What if he died slowly? Everyone could come and pay their respects. Everyone could see him. And, and goodness knows And the way we treat humans today and each other today, and even animals, we do not want people to feel pain when they die. And and heaven forbid that I'm in pain when I die. My family, my friends, my doctors, they would supply me with a degree of medicine so that I would not be in a torturous state. And yet Jesus had none of this. None of the touches, none of the mention of his honor, none of the value, none of the the painkillers. It was gnarly, and he felt and understood and took on everything every bit of it. And then I also think of what if Jesus would have, you know, lived on and died now. The world would be wrapped around with people telling stories of Jesus and how he changed their lives. It all could have been different, but this was part of the plan. Uh, Isaiah 53, another prophecy, it says, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was despised. And for all the good he did, he he was given no credit. He was given no respect. He was given no honor. And not only that, but the the death was painful. It was torturous. This isn't a funeral that I would want for my beloved Jesus. This isn't the way I would have done it. There's no memorial. The people that were there were yelling that he was a blasphemer. They were saying, You blasphemed. You said you're going to save us. You said you're going to rebuild the temple, and you can't even save yourself. Who's blaspheming here? There's always this irony going on in the Bible, you know, yelling at him and telling him that he should get off the cross. They wanted him to be powerful, to show super, superhuman strength. If he didn't save them all, fine, fine, don't save me, but save yourself. Don't be weak. Don't be pathetic, Jesus. If you really are God, get off the cross. Doesn't that make you mad, right? Get off the cross. What are you doing? This cannot possibly be the way God works. This cannot be God's plan. And someone had the audacity in verse 32. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Really? You're going to see and believe when he comes off the cross? When it's, when it's done your way to your expectation? Uh, One of the commentaries I wrote, read by uh, Mark Tyndale, he wrote this, and I love this. He wrote, to descend from the cross was not indeed a physical impossibility, but it was a moral and spiritual impossibility for the Messiah. If he did so, he would cease to be God's Christ. Instead, he would become a mere human Christ, and such a Christ could never save the world. 
And as to them believing, he wrote, their demand was impossible for see and believe is not God's order of working, but ours. It'd be impossible too, for even if the miracle were to have been granted them, they still would not have believed. Their resistance to God lay in their stubborn will, not their intellect. They were determined not to believe because their concern like Pilate's was not with truth. They're about their way, not with what God's truth is. So these are the bad guys, right? These are the bad guys, the losers, the guys yelling at Jesus up there because he doesn't meet their expectation. And this totally has nothing to do with me, right? I'm never like that. My, my will and God's will, they're pretty much in sync. doesn't happen. <laughs> I, I do. I struggle with this. When God does not meet my expectation, when I don't see and believe God behaving and acting and blessing and working in a way that I can vibe with, I struggle. I think we do struggle with it. Or what about this? You know, God, you should do something for me really awesome that I really want done. And you know what? I haven't been that sinful anymore. You know how sins are like this? There's like the baby sins and then the big sins. I'm done with the big sins. So now I deserve some really big time blessings. Trying to be good. We really underplay our sin. We really do when we start to think like that. And I think the reason we do that, and maybe the reason we don't want to think our sin is so bad, is because we truly don't believe that God loves us that much. I'm going to say that again. Maybe the reason we don't want to think our sin is that bad is because we don't feel worthy of that much extravagant love. We don't believe we deserve it. But in the book of Romans, Paul reminds us in chapter 5, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we are still sinners, while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross, the scene of torture, this gnarliness happened for us sinners. Paul goes on and on and on, and I'm going to share a little bit more about this. And the way I look at it is you have the cross, but that's like the DVD. And then you have the commentary, which is like the New Testament on the cross. And it gives you all the details and the behind the scenes and the why. And that's very helpful sometimes. Uh, Like in Romans 8.32, this is a behind the scenes of the cross. Paul's talking, for God is, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long, for we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither present nor future nor any power, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the commentary. That's the point. That is why. 
And this commentary to the cross that Paul offers us can help us more fully understand this horrific scene that happened in Golgotha. God himself was in this. God is the doer. And does this meet our expectation of God, of who God is? Is this social justice? It's like the ultimate social justice. Is this God being caring, compassionate, meek, mild? We should not be so desensitized to what we know, but rather be open to understanding that God is like this. Why is he like this? Why would he give up his only son, his perfect sinless son? Why? For all of us. Because the impact of this must be horrific. Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit want us to understand that this is suffering. This is not the sacrificial lamb, unblemished lamb that was taken in the, New, in the Old Testament and just had his little throat cut and died right away. This is gnarly, torturous, painful death. And why? Because holiness requires a sacrifice. The cross says that there is a penalty, and this punishment is severe. The cross is a sign that God really is willing to punish sin. It's like a parent that goes, I'll spank you, I'll spank you, I'll spank you, I'll spank you. God's not like that. There is a punishment, only we didn't get it. God punishes sin because God is holy. And yet God is loving, and that's the dichotomy of the cross. He's holy, but he's loving. God is holy, 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 loving, 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 and he loves you and he loves me. And it's easy for me to remember and recall that he loves me when he meets my expectation. Um, if he would have gotten off the cross, he would have met everybody's expectation. But he stayed on there. And do you know what staying on there looked like? It looked like four things. It looked crazy. It looked weak. It looked unpopular. And it looked helpless. And I look at my life and I say, oh, man, I see crazy in my life. God, your will is crazy in my life. You think about raising kids on support. I live off of support, what I raise. That's crazy. And yet that's God's will for my life. I married a musician who's a lot younger than me. Mike said it was a good idea. This guy had like 300 bucks and broken guitars. It looks crazy. And yet that's God's will for my life. Having children in a little house we call the one baby house. Crazy. And yet it's God's will for my life. And Jesus staying on the cross looked weak. It looked weak. It looked pathetic. How many times have you, being a Christian, had to chosen the weak thing because you love Jesus? It looks weak not to stomp in and bust up and make sure you get your way. It looks weak turning the other cheek. It looks weak being the servant, and yet that is God's will for our life. And it certainly looks unpopular. I don't have to talk much about that, but you know, like, Everybody's doing it kind of thing or, you know, thinking contrary, we should tithe. That's kind of unpopular. That's kind of weird. Don't you want, you know, a cool HGTV house? You're never going to make it there. Yeah. I don't know. I do. <laughs> All the ways we have to be unpopular and contrary and countercultural because it's God's will. That's the point. It doesn't look like what the world says. The world doesn't get it. And, and lastly, and probably the hardest for me, is that it looks helpless. Jesus on the cross looks damn helpless. Hands nailed, legs nailed, not capable. That looks helpless. 
And that makes me mad that God did that. And it makes me mad that God did that for me because he shouldn't have to. He's God. He can bust out and take over that. He's got angels. He's got all this stuff. He's choosing helpless. And when I talk about my expectations being met, I'm talking about the expectations of how this world is run. It is not fair. I get upset. I can't watch those documentaries of children starving and genocides and all the gnarly stuff that happens because it is not right. That is weak. But God has a plan, and it's God's will for Jesus to save these people and to be glorified for his purpose, for his reasons. We don't get it. Are we going to get it? No, I certainly can't even get the dichotomy of the cross, let alone get all of the injustices that happen. What I get is that it is for us. And what I get is that this is a massive sacrifice on our behalf. He commended his love to us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that is true love. Actually, that is a standard for love. And it's not for what we do. And it's not even because of who we are at the core. God did not die for us because of who we are at the core. I used to think, oh, sometimes I sin. Oh, but forget those sins. Recognize that, you know, I am a good person. Not even that. Not even at the core. It's who Jesus is. It's who Jesus was. And that's the reason it was able to happen. What Jesus did for us was a once-for-all atoning provision. So when you think of Jesus, you do, you think of the miracles and you think of the teaching and you think of the preaching and the compassion and the sinless life. That is true, but that's not the point. Even God becoming man was not the point. These are all beautiful abilities, reasons why the cross could happen. He had to be sinless. He had to be perfect so the cross could happen. So together, the action of the cross and the way Jesus lived his life is what made the cross possible. And that is God's plan for our salvation. Let me pray for us. God, it looks crazy. It looks weak. It looks helpless. It looks unpopular, your cross. And yet we know and we recognize that it is what we need. It is what was required for who we are. God, I don't assume to know or understand why you do what you do and how you're growing us. But I believe, Father God, that you love each of us here tonight in a very special, powerful way. And I believe that the cross was done for each of us, whether we recognize and admit it or not. Continue to teach us, Lord, um, what the cross means and how to live out knowing that we are loved so good. We are extremely extravagantly loved. Let us walk in that love, knowing that we can't earn it. Thank you, Father, for what you did, and thank you, Jesus, for what you did. Amen.